Welcome to Deconstructed, the podcast of the Grand Valley Construction Association. I'm your host, Jeff McIntyre. We talk with construction industry leaders to break down the issues affecting our businesses. The objective is to understand them better and move towards building a stronger and more collaborative construction industry here at home and across Canada. Today's guest on Deconstructed is Alex Kinsella, um, friend for a number of years. You've read for so, for sure some uh, some of Alex's content. You've seen photos for sure. You've had attended events that uh, Alex has uh, amplified, um, and you probably have been through parts of a community that Alex have rebranded. So, uh, Alex, welcome to the Deconstructed Podcast. It's very weird. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I'm normally not on them. I'm just recording them. So this I know is, I like uh, this. This strange. is good. Alex is behind the scenes and has produced a number of podcasts that you probably listen to, and um, we thought it'd be a good discussion today to talk about uh, um, Alex's perspectives on community. So you currently reside in Waterloo Region. Yeah, but you, I, unlike me, you weren't born and raised here. So just give me a little bit about the journey. What? How did you? How did you end up here? Yeah, it was. Uh, I feel like it's a cliche where everyone's like, "It's not your traditional journey." Um, I don't think there is a traditional one. Anyways, I was born in Dublin, Ireland, a uh, long time ago, and my family emigrated to the states to Florida. And so, from kindergarten through university, and for a few years after that. Uh, I lived in, in South Florida, um, which is a whole thing. It's a whole podcast episode unto itself. Uh, but after graduation, I started working for a tech startup in South Florida, and it was acquired by one in Waterloo. And unlike the traditional brain drain of the you know early 2000s, instead of uh, Canadian moving south, I moved north. Uh, so I moved to Waterloo and started working. Here, uh, I've lived in Conestogo and Waterloo and now Kitchener for the last 18 years. Um, but yeah, that's kind of my, my path here. Interesting. Um, what I want to talk about a bit today is just uh, perspectives on what makes community great. And really, as far as I'm concerned right now, we can we can read the news and we can get uh, we can get concerned about a number of things as a uh, as a father of you know, three children, three girls. I have two granddaughter and another one on the way. Um, I know the world's going to figure itself out, but I'm not sure it's figuring out the right way. And this is not super, super deep. But one of the issues are that, that always concern me is the ability for the, my children to um, live kind of life I did. And, you know, with all the, I hate to say it, with all the privileges and all the opportunities and all the things that we were, because I think uh, cost of living or whatever. So I really want to dial in today on about, uh, you know, what would make community better and a bit of a blue sky session, but ultimately in order to make it better, we have to identify some of the concerns that, that we're seeing in the community. So before we go into the positive, what are some of the things that, uh, that concern you? in our community and, and uh, kind of the sustainability, both from the environmental, but just the, the whole feeling of community that, uh, that we should be aware of and make an overt effort to change. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, right? Because as parents, it's weird to refer to myself as a parent, even though I have a kid in grade nine, um, I don't feel like I'm there yet. But as parents, we want our kids to have better lives than we had. I know my parents wanted that for us. I know my grandparents wanted that for my parents and so on. And generally, life today is continually better than it was a generation ago. Right? There, there are opportunities. There's a number of things we can talk about that are bad from housing to you name it. But um, 
the, the community though is, is an interesting one because if you talk to, if I talk to like my parents or my in-laws and they will talk about the difference in community today versus when, when they were growing up and when they were young adults and, and, you know, newly married and parents. And there's a number of things that I think go to that. Like we're not religious, but church was a big reason that people built community and that's not a thing anymore. And there's not, nothing that's really come in and replaced that for a lot of people. Um, online distractions are a big thing that are taken away from that. Um, the, the need for um, the demands on work and school for a lot of people too, taking away from the ability to participate in things, the expense of community events to be able to participate too is kind of putting that out of reach for people. Um, so it's it's finding ways to, to build that. Uh, and we're also not a monoculture anymore. And I think that's a big thing, right? We're not one community anymore. We're one community of a hundred different communities and how we interact with each other. And that's a, a critical thing that we don't put, I think, a lot of attention into. Some organizations do, right. but not the board. You know, it's interesting you say that because I every uh, every weekend I go to our local market and I'm, I'm, I'm astonished by how many different dialects I hear mm. just randomly walking behind people and what I, you know, I grew up in this community and it was very traditional and very, I, you could, I could draw a picture of it very, very clearly of what my class picture looked like, what my high school picture looked like. And our community changed. And I, and I love the fact that we're more of a worldly community and I applaud, you know, advanced manufacturing technology for making it feel that way. But we are exactly to your point. We are not what we were and I have no clue where we're going, but bottom line, it's out of our control. It, it's out of our well. I don't think it's out of our control. I think it, it is this idea of intention and doing things with purpose. And when we do events, whether whatever group it's it's doing that event, what's the purpose behind it, right? So if you look at I mean, multicultural fest is fantastic in in Victoria Park every year. The intention behind that is is showcasing all the cultures that make up our community. There's a lot of intent in that, and it you you go there and you see the the variety of people that call uh, Waterloo Region home, they're participating. Other events that are are doing that now too, and it, you don't have to be a multicultural event. Like if you went to, um, you know, I mean, Oktoberfest is definitely sh shifting and changing the way they, they address the community. Um, but every cultural festival in town really is a way of not just showcasing, hey, we, we just want people from our community to come to this. Right. We want people from every community to come and explore. And taste the food and listen to the music and, and those kind of things. And I think that's what makes things great when you see that intention in we want people to experience our culture, to understand the differences that we have, but then also the similarities that we have. Yes. Yeah, thank you for the correction. I, I think out of control was the wrong word. The reality is it's going to change regardless. Um, yeah. But, but then going back to the intentionality of, of, of uh, what it is and what's going to make people uh, feel more welcome. So when you came to Great White North, um, I'm assuming you felt welcome. I did. And I always, I always try to remember, like I, I'm a white guy from an English speaking country. Right. So as uh, someone moving to Canada, it was dead easy for me to come in and adjust other than, you know, the, the weird little cultural differences that I didn't, totally understand and still sometimes don't understand. But I think about that when, when you, when I meet new Canadians from non-English speaking, non, you know, white dominant, you know, countries, you, 
you realize that privilege, right? That privilege that I have in being able to acclimate and be accepted. And um, my experience immigrating to Canada is vastly different than other people's. Yeah. And I think we need to more be more overt and understanding of the realities. I was at a seminar yesterday on, you know, immigration and immigration to work. And the reality is it's, it's, it's intimidating. Imagine landing at the airport and someone's telling you, asking you questions quickly in, uh, in English in our, you know, in the, in the, the language of the organization. It's no different than I've landed in Italy and France and China was even worse. Right. It's like, I'm screwed. I have no clue what's about to happen here. I'm just handing documents over with the assumption that one of them might be right. And I won't be, I won't be detained, but I think the, the, uh, the welcome is, uh, is very, very difficult. So in the past, it's funny, we talk about trades and, you know, with being part of deconstructed, and this is, this is really bigger than the construction industry, but, there's this, I was at a discussion yesterday and it was about, you know, new Canadians in the construction industry. And one of the things that keeps coming up, I think is interesting, which is language barrier. And I don't know if that's really an issue. Cause if you think back to, you know, we're all immigrants to this, uh, this community. And there were many people I know whose grandparents came directly from Germany or Poland or wherever Yugoslavia, they, they still don't speak English. They worked for 30 years and communicated yeah. effectively. Now there was a bit of a cohort of individuals, but but I keep thinking that through Google Translate and through technology, and there's got to be ways that we don't have to make them fit into you know the square peg into the round hole. I don't think I don't think it has to be so so overt in the fit. So I'm curious what your thoughts are. Again, you came in; it was easy, but we know lots of people in common that that it wasn't quite so easy. So how, do you think we're good at accepting people and adopting? Um, yes and no. And I'll say with, with language is always one of those, uh, I, I want to say it's an excuse, right? Where people say, like, well, language barrier and that not on the non-English speaking or non-English as a first language person, but on, on English speakers, we want to say, well, language is a barrier. Well, language is a barrier because as English speakers, most of us only speak English, right? But for a lot of people, like adapting and learning is multiple languages is just part of, of their culture. And you, know, you go anywhere in Europe and everyone speaks two to three languages. And here it's, it's English, right. or French, you know, depending on where that is. So I don't, I don't, learning English is definitely difficult. And, but at the same time, people adapt and um, I don't think that's a barrier. What I do think the challenge though, and as employers, as community members, as whatever educators, you name it, um, the thing that we could all do a better job of is helping foster a sense of belonging for people when they move here. And that's to me is I think the biggest, the biggest issue we have immigration, you know, across North America, right? So across the U S and, and Canada specifically, you know, there were waves of people from countries, right? There's waves of immigrants from Europe and there's waves of immigrants from Eastern Europe and then from Asia and from Africa. Uh, but when you move in a large cohort, like you have a community, you have a sense of belonging. Um, when we're doing like, you know, it's, there's obviously a lot, a large number of immigrants that have come in over the last few years, um, through federal policies, which is fantastic. But are we, are we doing the things that we need to do to create a, a, a community that makes people feel like they belong here? Right. Like we can say, Oh, we welcome everybody. Are we welcome? And welcoming is one thing like saying, Hey, here you go. Right. But what do we do to, to bring people in and to, um, and, and make them feel at home. Belonging is such a weird, a weird thing. And 
it's it's I think it's really important for all of us to kind of sit sit down and take a moment and think about when did you actually feel like the last time that you belonged where you are. Right. And it, that means like that's a pure level of just ease and comfort where you're able to be, you know, your authentic self. Um, you're able to contribute. You're able to, to be happy. Um, and for a lot of people, I think if they sat down and spent a little bit of time thinking about it, they would have a hard time remembering a time. Um, yeah. So we need to do that for ourselves. But we also need then to say, what are we doing to make everyone moving here feel like they belong? And then through that sense of belonging, then they, you know, we want everyone to take ownership in this community too. So if you've moved here 20 years ago or 10 years ago or 10 days ago, you know, we, we want you to feel like you belong. We want you to feel like you can contribute and we want you to take ownership in the, the health of everyone here, the health of our community. Yeah, it's, it, it, I, I couldn't agree more. And I mean, it's something we need to continue to amplify. So when we talked to, this is about building community and in the construction industry, you, 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 know, you intuitively move towards buildings and cranes yeah. and physical structures. But the reality is community is, is people way more than it is building. It's how they interact. Um, I have some concerns about the uh, housing and the impact of housing as it, as it creates community because if only um, a subsection of the population can afford to live in this community, whether it be from runaway rent or any community, runaway rents or very high you know, housing prices, how do we possibly um, build a community that requires everything? And there was an article that, that, that we co-authored on you know, from brain surgeons to baristas, like everyone needs to be involved to make this community survive. And in the past, we live in a community where it was a manufacturing community. The houses that were built were to support the manufacturer that was there. They were, you know, within walking distance, you, you know, everybody worked. There could be a, a population of Portuguese or Polish or, you know, English, Irish people working in community. So there, they had kind of a sense of community, but it was all within a very short distance of each other. But the housing that was created was to fulfill the workers. Now that's changed dramatically. And I mean, whether it be technology, it has to change. It's going to change. Whether it's technology, insurance, the way people work, how we work, where we work, everything is so different. So if you, pers you know, prescribing growth of a community and housing and the impact, you know, what's your thoughts on what role it plays in, uh, in you know, building any community going forward? What we build and how we build it really influences and i think it might be the most foundational element of a lot of things that are going wrong in our communities then also the solution to what we can do i think the housing that we're building and have built over the last say 40 50 years has been one of the reasons that we've lost a lot of sense of our community mm -hmm. a lot of that has to do with you know, we're, we're building things farther and farther out. So you're spending more time commuting when you're alone in your car, you're not building community. Listening to a podcast does not build community. Right. Unfortunately, right. You're wasting two hours a day in that, you know, one of the bigger ones and, and you know, we both live in single family homes and there's a whole bunch of things to say about that in terms of missing middle and what we need to build. Um, but we also live in an older neighborhood where none of us have garages, right? Where we all park either like in a driveway we have front porches. Um, and then when you look at suburbs and newer builds where it's a two car garage and a smaller front door, and then, you know, you see those neighborhoods, people drive in, they park in the garage, they go in their house. Right. So a lot of them in, and not to say that those areas don't have, you know, great community, but there's, there's a palpable difference between being out in your front yard and spending time and seeing people and then not. 
Right. And, you know, you, you know, if you, if you look at uh, a larger city, when you're in a large condo building or a large apartment building and your amenities are outside, right. Whether that's a fitness center or a park or community center, you're out, you're meeting more people, right? right. So you see that, that, you know, those serendipitous meetings that happen on the street happen because people are forced to be out and, and interact with each other. We need more of that, right? We need to go back to the idea of, um, you know, the, the, the missing middle housing, right? The five to eight story apartment buildings that make sense for people and for families. Um, condos are housing for people. Right. And we have to get away from this idea that for whatever reason, you know, and you hear local politicians and, and across the province, no matter where you live, you know, they're building a 30 story condo and whether 30 stories is right or not, it's not the point. It's they don't treat it like it's housing. People who live in condos are our neighbors. People who live in apartment buildings are our neighbors. People who live in single family homes are our neighbors. And we have to start treating everyone like that um, in order to help build more community. I've been in Europe a number of times. And I, I think I think the allure of Canada, I think back to my father coming over, was opportunity and and the ability to move out of a flat into a, into a property with a piece of land and... The reality is maybe that the economics on that don't work anymore, right? That maybe for some people, or maybe not for everybody. But if, I've been to Europe a number of times, and I've gone to dinner at some friends' homes, and some of them are very affluent, and some of them are are not. But bottom line, it's always in a stacked facility. There's rarely a, a yard. Um, you don't hear a lot of lawnmowers because bottom line, they created intensity. They created these, these, these communities. And for some reason that as your comment is earlier has, has been deemed as a, as a, a, not a failure, but you haven't succeeded yet. Unless you have a yard, you know, with a fence yeah. and a lawn and a double driveway and granite countertops. Like these are, these are all the definitions of success. And I think the economics might help us redefine what housing should look like and what community should look like as a result. I think there's a large part of North American mindset is um, very much that this libertarian idea of like, I'm doing this on my own, I'm successful and this is, I'm going to continue to work. And like you said, it's that, that large 3,500 square foot home for four people um, is, is the, the pinnacle of success. I grew up in a, you know, four people in a house. My dad ran his business out of, out of our house. My brother and I shared a room because yeah. um, one room was an office, one room was a dark room. And we were fine. I remember like my mom who is, you know, born and raised in, in Philly. Um, and, she, you know, to this day, she's she still will say, like, I wish we had of, you know, moved to a bigger house. And my brother and I are still to this day. But why? Like we we lived, we could walk to our schools. We could walk to grocery stores. We could walk downtown. We could walk to the beach, which is a whole different story. Um, but like we, and we lived in, you know, not the nicest neighborhood, but we, you know, it was, it was, we had a place to sleep. We, you know, it was a nice enough house and we never complained. And it's, it's funny when you look at that now and, you know, people want bigger and more and more, but no, like you, you need what you need. And how do we re get people to redefine that? Yeah. If you, some of the, some of the projects that, uh, and the developers and, and, construction people that I worked with, they all lived in eight to 900 square foot homes, two, three yeah. bedroom, one bathroom. And 
they're, they were, they talk about it as the best time of their life, which is. Did you see? But there was a thing on, um, like, and, and like we, you know, I talk about housing all the time, and you know, obviously across Canada and in Ontario, housing is the number one discussion. It's going to be the make or break political issue of potentially probably this decade. Right. Um, there was a thing uh, like it was on CBC or the globe and they were talking about the average size of homes and they're using Mississauga as a base. And it's like in the seventies and eighties, the average size of a new build was 1400 square feet, mm-hmm. give or take. And now the average size is 2,800 square feet. And so when you're talking, you know, when we look at it from Grand Valley construction association standpoint, we have a labor shortage. We have rising material costs. Um, you know, we have rising interest rates. You have all these things. We're building twice the amount of house for the same amount of people. We don't have enough people to actually do the work. So, right. you know, you could, I mean, we can talk about all the potential solutions to, to you know, new builds. We never talk about the fact that new builds are too big, right? There's really nothing wrong with single family homes, <laughs> but a, you know, 3,600 square foot single family home for four people is kind of like kind of crazy in an office and this might have changed but in an office like they tell you figure 100 square foot per person right in an office right and then yeah yeah washrooms and kitchens and everything else but just workspace but living space for a person in an office the idea of you know a thousand square feet give or take per person in a house when you're only there after school after work through the night like where do we get this idea from? Yeah, and I, I hopefully um, budgetary constraints, interest rates, costs of everything you yeah. talked about are going to cause a correction. Um, I feel like I made a bunch of people mad by saying that. That's okay. But, I mean, that's okay. I mean, bottom line, people have to you either have to defend because you earned it, and that's fine. But bottom line, there isn't even a gateway for earning things right now to getting into the market. And, you know, from from you know, let's talk about my children. I have two of them. One of them had to drive uh, 52 minutes away so they could afford a house from away from all their support and the family and everything that they'd like to be here. They'd love to be in the neighborhood where they grew up. And the other one, the only way they could get into the housing market was to buy a half a house, right? To spend a million dollars for spend half, you know, half a million dollars for half a house. And that was the only way to do it. I talked to a number of people that realized that for their children, the only way with the current model that they're going to get into a house um, is uh, they're going to either have to buy it for them or buy a house to rent it to and eventually just give it to them. And I think the reality is that the, the economy has changed so much that we are, all of our wealth is tied up in, in our house. Our parents and grandparents didn't make their money on the value of their home. They made it on, on market and saving. And, you know, it's the other way now. We hedge, we gamble, we buy big houses, we hope the market's going to continue to go up. And then we hope when it's all said and done and we're going to cash out that, you know, we're, we're in a positive delta. So that, that concerns me a lot. But, but maybe just maybe the economics and the high interest rates and the cost of housing might help solve the problem. What do you think? I mean, I hope it does. I mean, you still see, you know, a house going for a million dollars at, and it's what seven percent interest right now, and you're kind of like, that's. I don't understand how those those economics work. I mean, when my parents bought their house um, in 1981, uh, seventy five thousand. But it, I mean, it was at, I think it was probably eleven percent, right? It was right. kind of height of, of you know, beginning of Reaganomic kind of thing. Um, but seventy five thousand at eleven percent, you know, 
on a 20 year mortgage that's manageable uh, you know a million at 7% on a like whatever we're at now like on a you know every 5 years you don't know what's going to happen on a you know 30 to infinite mortgage mm-hmm. i don't understand how the economics work so alex what would better look like if we could redesign this uh, we you know we, we take a <laughs> we take a group of uh, we take a bus we load it up with a bunch of construction materials we drive to wherever and we rebuild society. What what did we do wrong, and what what could we do right? We we have to stop treating housing like an asset and treat housing like a right, which it is. Um, and not to say that we have to, you know everyone needs a McMansion, but everyone has a has a right to a place to 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 live, right? To call home, and we don't do that now. Um, we have too many loopholes that allow it to happen, right? We've We've removed rent control, which is increasing the rent for people, uh, making it unlivable, putting it way above the you know thirty percent of their income, is not giving them any ability to move up from renting to owning if that's what they wanted to do. Right. Um, you know, we have the the REITs, um, which have you know a tax exempt status, which again allows you know it's profit over people in those cases, and it's a loophole that we could close um, to to make that happen. And the other one too is again, um, and you know, you and I live near Belmont village. It's what cities should look like and what communities should look like. Right. Um, not to, you know, not to make this a cookie cutter kind of thing, but you should be able to walk to a pharmacy to get a coffee, to get some bread, to get some groceries. And the people working in those stores should be able to afford to live, to be able to walk and work there too. And if we fail on that, um, I, I don't know how we kind of work our way out of this. You just described most European cities in the yeah. sense that there's a big common square and everything's built around it. And, you know, there's housing on the square. There's housing surrounding the square. The, 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 uh, it's, it's walkable. You know, you yeah. just you get your stuff close to where you live. But unfortunately, we, I, you know, I, I'm, by default, uh, three days a week, have to drive to another community for work. And I see a lot of cars and 99% of the cars have one person in them driving, driving to work. And it just, uh, it's just seems so archaic. Um, the impact of when I mean, it's, it's really building community, but the impact of the, the, the pitfalls and the, and the concerns that we've got right now go way beyond just basic shelter and, and occupations. I mean, affordability causes a problem. If you're, if your barista has to live out of town, what is, you know, what is the chance that they're going to make it back in for a, for a lower income type wage, right? So we got to figure out how to get people in the community, but it also impacts mental health, impacts crime, impacts, uh, you know, drug, drug addiction, and, and just really the makeup of the community. So I'm, it's not dire straight, but I'm what, you know, what, again, I keep going back to this, what are the concerns and what can we do? What, how can we make this better? Again, I, I always go back to this idea of belonging. And what do we do to make people feel like they belong? When you feel like you belong, you feel like you have ownership. When you have ownership, you want to take care of it. It's why we all treat rental cars like crap, right? <laughs> you don't care. You don't, right? No, and we, none of us treat a rental car like it's like ours, but your own car, you take care of it because you have ownership in it. That sense of ownership and community comes from feeling like you belong. And what can we do to do that, right? And it's affordability is a big one, right? Like if you're you know, fighting to choose between rent and groceries or medicine like that, you, you, there's no way you're going to feel like you belong in your community because you barely feel like you belong in your own life. Right. right. And like you and I are very, very privileged. We don't have no that problem. Um, but people do. And if we don't fix that, they don't feel like they belong and then they can't participate 
fully in the community. Right. And if we, if we want to do that, right. And we want to, we, you know, we want our, our children, you know, to thrive and to be happy. We've, we've got to address those things. And we, we don't, we don't necessarily, we don't really do it for a lot of things. Including um, our, including ourselves. Like, again, we, we yeah. just, we, we're constantly looking for the next thing. Um, yeah. Shifting gears just a little, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, like, I, I think that the most important thing across any of these challenges is that it's not a lack of resources. It's a lack of will. We have the resources to house people and to feed people and to provide opportunities for people. We just don't have the will to do it. Right. And I think that, it, thanks for that. I think that um, there is a, there is a, um, there's a structure and a process that a lot of people fall back to and simply say, hey, this is, this is the way it's designed, and therefore we must have followed these protocols, and there's this hierarchy of, of, of process, and quite frankly, it's archaic. But what they, keep, they forget to uh, rem well, neglect to remember is that that process was invented, and therefore it's not etched in stone, and therefore it can be reinvented. To, for better, but the fear of change for a lot of people just blows their mind. Or this is the structure; these are the controls. They were put in place for a reason, and therefore those reasons still exist. Uh, the the best question you can ever ask is why. Yeah. Why do we do it this way? Like if if you're in if you're at work, I mean, the number of times I've trained someone, and the best question someone I'm training can ask is, "Why do we do it this way?" I'm like, "Awesome! I'll explain it to you." And if you can come up with a better way to do it. Let's do it a better way. Um, and I go back to what you said, everything that we do now, every structure, every rule, every process, it's invented by someone. It was created by someone sometimes 20, 30, a hundred, 200 years ago. Why do we still do it this way? I love this. So just switching gears for a second culture. We talk about housing being important. We talk about accessibility. We talk about culture. What role does culture play in the betterment of society? And what's the risk of the elimination of culture if we just can't let new people and new cultures into, into our community? I don't think we have a choice in a good way, right? Like this is, this is the natural way that things will change. Um, there's things that we love about where we live and accepting that they won't always be part of where we live is hard. Right. I love Ethel's, right? It's been a part, it defines my time in Canada so right. far. Um, I hope it'll be there forever and ever and ever, but it probably won't be. And I know I'm choosing Ethel's and it's a, a random one, but it means a lot to me. Um, and their nachos are fantastic. But if it went away, like it's going to go away. And that's just part of, of living in a community. The same thing goes with any aspect of our culture. It changes, it grows. You find new favorite things and you have to be open to that of just going, like letting go of things that nothing's forever and then welcoming new things into your life and discovering new things. I, I, I love example. I love when people say I was wrong. <clears throat> I truly love when people have the, the, the nuts to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. And it doesn't I happen at all, but we need more of it. I am wrong. One time when I worked at, at, at BlackBerry and I tried to correct a guy on a math formula, which I should not have even, even tried to do because I'm not that person. And of course, the guy is like a PhD in mathematics. And I was like, I don't even know what I was thinking. And I, I wrote him, I BBM'd him. And I was like, hey, uh, 
I was wrong. I don't even know what I was thinking. Like, I'm really sorry. And he's like, no, like I'll buy you a coffee. We'll, you know, chat. And like, we became friends, right? right. Just again, admitting you're wrong is such a powerful thing. We, we live in a community that has changed so dramatically. I've been here my whole life. You've been here how many years now? Uh, 20 in January. Right. So 20 years is, is mind boggling in the number of years. Think of comms, think of Blackberry. So here we are, we were both influenced significantly by Blackberry had one of the first yeah. for sending text back and forth. And the fact that people wanted to hold on to the keyboard and when the, when the, uh, storm, I think it was called, what was the one where yeah. the first touch yeah, yeah. screen, the 10, yeah, that cool. 10 row, like the screen, the, the buttons were gone and people were losing their, losing their shit going, you know, I don't want this. I don't want this. Or, or think of comms. I was talking to an older gentleman the other day who fought computers and technology and construction. And, and, you know, now I, I asked him a question. He pulls, I said, Hey, what's uh, how do I contact this person? He pulls out his phone and, you know, and he, you know, sends me the V card for, uh, for the person information. I just love it. The fact that like you were so wrong and you were fighting to hold on to what it was. And the reality is now you've adapted and changed. I love this. Well, the adapting, the adapting to change is a great example of, of the mindset we should all have, which is a passion for lifelong learning, right? right. The minute you stop learning, you really do stop living. Uh, I remember like we all use digital cameras today and, and we all use smartphones today to take pictures. Um, my dad's a photographer. And when the, the switch from film to digital started happening, you know, I would see a lot of photographers in, in his community talk about how fearful they were of it. And the idea of having to really relearn a lot, right? Cause right. it's a, a, you think today technology is shifting. You go from chemicals and film to digital was a, I hate the same paradigm shift, but a paradigm shift in the way photography happened. You know, my dad was, you know, 50 something at the time. And he took up like a five day course in New York city to learn how to use the, like the new systems. Right. Right. You just adapt, you adapt, you go with it. You did that for another 20 years after that. And that's the way we have to be today. You know, and today is, you know, construction technology changes as AI seemingly takes over everything and, you know, threatens jobs that exist today and it's going to create new jobs again that sounds like a cliche but new jobs we don't know what will be um it's it's adapting it's learning it's understanding how these things work and how you can bring them in into the things that you do and um to really understand them and then make you know a judgment call on on whether they're they're beneficial or not when i was in grade eight when the metric system was introduced in canada and it was shitty because i had learned the archaic imperial system for a number of years and then right in the middle yeah. I, had to, I had to relearn in the middle of it and, and I, to be honest i'm i still struggle sometimes on on the conversion i can't imagine how you felt coming up here and going what but, but you probably embrace it and realize oh this is much easier i well i once i learned it but that's that's a you know i 28 when i moved here and yeah i came from a country that you know one of three that still uses the imperial system on the planet and I remember looking at the, I'm just like, I don't, I don't get it. And temperature was the big one, right? Like I came from somewhere that was, you know, 25 year round. So I didn't really need to know. Um, but one of the, the women that I worked with, I was saying to one day, like, I just, I can't figure out the conversion in my head. Like there's a formula. She's like, don't do it. Don't try to do it in your head. Go out, look at the, look at the weather, go outside. If it says it's 15 and you go outside, let your body learn what 15 is. Let your body learn what 25 is and 38 is. And 
that's that's all I did. Like it's just that that's it. I don't I don't have to relearn a new system. It's it's how that applies to your life. And I think that's with with anything that we're learning, right? It's it's how do how do you use this in your life? Like don't try to just keep it in your head. Yeah. You just do it. If you're gonna learn something, you have to do it. Yeah, stop fighting it. I think our industry is changing dramatically. It, you know, it's been uh, labeled as something that's somewhat archaic, but the reality is it's it's much further on than anyone ever anticipated. How we build community, how we build buildings, the technology, you talked about that earlier, and the impact is massive. I think we need to keep going on uh, redesigning what better will look like and uh, and move forward. But I mean, AI is, is in, I just embrace it and change everything. I was uh, listening to a podcast this morning where, you know, medicine in the future will be tailor-made to your own DNA will be, and there'll be no side effects and, you know, mental illness will be eradicated because it'll understand your body. It'll, you know, it'll tailor it, you know, cars, drivers, driverless cars are a thing of our future. And then, you know, we'll move to flying cars. It's pretty cool stuff. So just last kind of uh, uh, commentary on, on building community. So both the physical, what do we need to do better? And, and kind of the, uh, the, the soft, if you could redefine your, you are now deputized as the, uh, the ultimate power and the, uh, the, the, the designer of the future. Um, what are a couple things that we need to do better to embrace uh, the change that's inevitable? Design cities for walking, cycling, and transit and cars last. That's, I mean, like you said about driverless cars and flying cars and autonomous ve- and autonomous vehicles and everything else. The, the there will always be cars right um there will always be gas powered cars but as a primary mode of transportation we have to actively end that right amazing alex you're usually behind the scenes um incredible wisdom loved every single minute of this it's not provoking and it it really gives uh, food for thought as i said and i used the wrong term out of our control it is our control unless we just let it go. And if we let it go, we're doomed. I think if we control and understand the changes that are coming, uh, communities can be better. Um, Thank you very much for being part of the Deconstructed podcast. And um, let's hope we get some uh, acknowledgement and maybe a little uh, negative feedback on uh, on the commentary to say you're wrong. I love that. That makes me happy. So it wouldn't be the first time I've been wrong. (laughs) Alex, thanks for your time. Have a good day. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for listening to Deconstructed, the podcast of the Grand Valley Construction Association. You can subscribe to Deconstructed in your favorite podcast app to get notified when it's live. If you want to learn more about the Grand Valley Construction Association or know someone we should have on the show, please contact me at jeff at gvca.org.